Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Georgia-born musician Torres uses raw guitars and intensely honest vocals to confront the demons of her past, and she's got one of the best albums of the year. Torres joins us for an interview and a live performance. Then we'll review the new record from alternative R&B songwriter Miguel. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to be talking about this new Miguel record, Jim, part of a wave of new alternative R&B artists reinventing the vocabulary of soul music. I'm talking about people like D'Angelo, Frank Ocean, The Weeknd, Van Hunt. It's been a great time for that style of music. Miguel, just the latest chapter. Can't wait to dive in, Greg, but first we have some music news. That is a little bit of a great psychedelic rock era single from a band called The Sin. Greg, why do people know or care? The leader of The Sin, at least musically, was Chris Squire. He made that single in 1967, had a hand in writing it. One of those great psychedelic nuggets about a bad trip, right? (laughs) I'm high and I'm dry and I'm grounded. He would go on the next year to form Yes, and he was the one member of Yes throughout its four-and-a-half, nearly five-decade career to play in every version of that band, a bass virtuoso. He died on June 27th at the age of 67. You know, I think we should remember Chris Squire not only as a progressive rocker, but as a rocker, period. When I last talked to him in 2002, he's a warm and witty man, very heady, as you would expect from a guy in Yes. But, you know, he said, look, I I think people always got it wrong. It was never just about the virtuosity. They were all virtuosos on their instruments. It wasn't about 18-minute solos. We were trying to create a sort of cinematic trip for the mind. We were trying to take you places in that space between the headphones to the topographic oceans that Yes would navigate. I'm an unrepentant Yes fan all the way through Tormato in like 1978. From the beginning, 68 to 78, a great run, and I still enjoyed them very much on stage, even if they weren't always great on record in recent years, and we won't talk about things like Asia or anything. Anyway, I I think Chris Squire was one of the greatest bass players in rock history. I think he was a fine songwriter, had a 
real hand in writing some of Yes's best songs, Seen All Good People, Starship Trooper, Yours Is No Disgrace. And I'm going to play a little bit of Heart of the Sunrise, because if you're a super geek progressive rock Yes fan, you know that there's a version of this out there floating around that isolates his bass. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's like, it sounds like 17 people playing at <laughs> once. Not but only it, that, the growling tone, you oh. know, the intensity of his playing was amazing to hear. Unbelievable. And that's with a Rickenbacker, and that's while wearing a cape. <laughs> I tell you, good trick. Here's a little bit of Yes, Heart of the Sunrise on Sound Opinions. <laughs> is Yes with Heart of the Sunrise from the great Fragile album, 1972, in tribute to the playing of Chris Squire on bass, dead at the age of 67. Sweet. 
Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis, and my partner is Greg Cott, and that is the title track from Sprinter, the 2015 album by our guest this week, Torres. That is the stage name of 24-year-old Georgia native Mackenzie Scott. Now based in Brooklyn, Torres emerged from the Nashville scene with a self-titled, self-released record in 2013. That album earned a lot of critical attention and led to tours with acts like Sharon Van Etten and Ockerville River. She's followed that up with Sprinter, recorded with P.J. Harvey's collaborator Rob Ellis, and it expands on the raw, emotional sound of that debut. Yeah, I was really impressed by Torres when I saw her perform at South by Southwest earlier this year. And just a few weeks ago, I named that album Sprinter to my best of the year so far list. So we were very excited to have Torres stop by our studios for an interview and a live performance. I wanted to know what the light bulb moment for her was growing up in Macon, Georgia, that made her realize she wanted to pursue songwriting. I really idolized Taylor Swift, <laughs> truly, when I was in Georgia. Um, and then I, when I went to Belmont University in Nashville, uh, I started going to house shows and seeing bands um, play electric guitar, which is something I'd never seen before, mm-hmm. besides in the youth group at church. But it was a different kind of show that I was seeing in college. So it was really bands like Diarrhea Planet and Natalie Prass that made me want to play electric guitar. In Nashville. Well, you started writing songs, though, before this, right? And Taylor Swift was an inspiration for you to start putting together words with with guitar? Yeah, uh, well, I was interested before I discovered Taylor Swift, but she was just the only songwriter and singer that I had sort of even in my line of vision that did what it was that I wanted to do, which is, you know, write her own songs and sing and be a performer. And I totally idolized her. You went to Belmont University in Nashville and studied songwriting, right? I mean, that was the major. There's a major in songwriting at Belmont University. Yes, I hold a degree in songwriting. Excellent. Wow. <laughs> so you kind of knew that this was going to be it. I mean, you wanted a career in music, and you were pretty focused about this. I wanted it, yeah. I, I didn't want anything else. What was the Nashville scene like? Because you hear there's these twin poles, right? Uh, you've got the singer-songwriter... Uh, right for the Nashville factory scene there. And then you've got a very active independent music scene there as well. So you you saw the whole gamut of the music industry in some ways, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I did. I saw both ends of the spectrum in Nashville. I learned a lot about what I didn't want to do. The commercial pop country machine, it's incredible, but terrible. And then I saw the underground house show scene, that was really what I was involved in. You know, you're an artist, Mackenzie, who who colors very much outside the lines. Uh, One of the things I love about Sprinter is that the songwriting is so unconventional. I can just imagine your professors now listening (laughs) to your second album and say, you know, she's a D, you know, and that's being kind, right? Do you take pride in that? I mean, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, you ain't doing that. Yeah, I saw a lot of disapproval, um... Even in my years there, so I could only imagine <laughs> what they'd say now. Um, all very supportive, but just not, we're not on the same wavelength for the most part. 
I think we have to, Greg, give people a sample of what we're talking about here. Sure. This guitar chaos, this refusal to play with the rules. What, what are you going to play for us, Mackenzie? This is called Sun, You Are No Island. Excellent.
That was Torres performing Sun, You Are No Island, live on Sound Opinions. After a quick break, we'll continue our conversation with Mackenzie Scott. Then we'll review the latest from R&B singer Miguel. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. This was more than I had bargained for They struck gold and beelined for the door Now I'll make me off from head to floor If I don't find me soon I won't be searching anymore Cause I am starving for the truth Feed me something real while I've got youth left in my veins I believe I knew it all along But you're the only one that didn't try to tell me I was wrong So soon, so soon, so soon I will run Until then I'll sit and let you saw, saw away Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is Ferris Wheel from our guest this week, Torres, also known as Mackenzie Scott. Mackenzie grew up as a Baptist in Georgia, and you can hear echoes of that upbringing in the biblical allusions she peppers throughout her lyrics. So I asked her what role faith plays in her songwriting. I guess the new record is just a a re-examination of my upbringing. There's a lot of my childhood on this album, and... When I was writing, I, what I was trying to do was re-examine my entire life up until this point from a, a new perspective. Not that that's actually possible, but I was basically looking at my childhood and, and trying to see it all uh, through the lens of you know, an adult, or maybe from more, more of an objective perspective from someone, say, who wasn't raised in the church. I really was just trying to get a different vantage point. I'm thinking of one of favorite artist Greg and I have, Nick Cave. He has no faith, and yet he loves that Old Testament imagery. He approaches it as literature. Mm-hmm. Would you buy that, that, that so many of these images and stories and, and metaphors are just timeless and brilliant? Oh, absolutely. And that, that was part of what I was trying to do with these songs. I went back and I read the old, a lot of the Old Testament. I didn't mm. read the whole thing. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, the new is pretty good, but the old one, that's the yeah, key. That's got the blood and guts. Yeah. And, you know, these are stories that I, I grew up knowing and hearing and reading and I was indoctrinated. And I went back to the beginning, literally, I went back to the Garden of Eden and to Noah's Ark. And I, I reread all of these stories and tried to retell them from the perspective of someone who hasn't ever read these stories or heard them. Um, and they're actually terrifying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of your guitars come from Book of Revelations, actually. <laughs> Thank <what> you. <laughs> And that personal perspective was there on your first record, came out in 2013. And you wrote that primarily when you were in school, right? In college. Yes. You know, what led you to that place where you got to the point where you were not only getting personal, but to the point where you were bringing out stuff about your family life? You know, there's that song that, uh, The Moon and Back, very powerful piece of music relating to your adoption. What motivated you to get that stuff out in the form of a song? Because it's one thing to write that down in a diary. It's another thing to share it with everybody. When I'm writing, it's usually because I'm not communicating. Honestly, I'm not communicating well in conversation. And I have the hardest time doing that with people that I care about, which is terrible. But my method of not only communication, but healing and forgiveness and all of these things that have to come eventually for peace to happen... And yeah, so the songwriting is what gets me there. And the song Moon and Back from from the first record was my way of talking about my adoption without actually talking about it. So stuff was building up, stuff that you couldn't say or were reluctant to say. You were able to say it in these songs. Yeah, um, writing these songs and sharing them is, um, I guess sharing them is half of the the healing process or, or rather the maybe the writing is the healing the sharing is the communication part because i i don't do it so well in daily conversation right what was it like for say your adoptive parents to hear something like that i mean it sounds like it was wow she's never been so open about this i would imagine right i think that they did and do feel that way I, i'm not really sure <laughs> mm-hmm. beyond that how they're feeling about all of it and and that one in particular. I mean, I, I guess it, they've got some insight now into what it is that I'm thinking about and struggling to talk about. And it, it, the songwriting has actually brought us closer. Little baby, if you're reading that, you'll probably grown the way most babies do. I'm sure you People picked up on this record. It got great reviews. You started touring the world. You met some cool people, sounds like. Sharon Van Etten, I guess you toured with her. We cannot fail to mention Rob Ellis, right, who ended up producing Sprinter. How did that work out? Rob Ellis, we should point out, great drummer, PJ Harvey, collaborator, producer. He was the first person that came to mind, not only because he's the only producer I know, but also, <laughs> but also because I adore him as a person and I'm a huge fan of his drumming. Mm-hmm. I had actually, I was about to go on stage in Brooklyn and I had just had a, a hearty shot of whiskey and I was, I was on fire and I emailed him and I said, mm-hmm. Hey Rob, you want to make a record? And he, and he emailed back and he said, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, another great collaborator, Adrian Utley of Portishead, has played guitar. Mm-hmm. What was that collaboration like? It was really cool. Adrian is a good friend of Rob's, and mm. uh, Rob 
recruited friends to play on the record. He said, mm -hmm. I think the best thing would just be to use some of my friends to play. And so he reached <laughs> out to Adrian. And we went to his studio in Bristol and played for a day. And it was, I mean, it was just fun. That's all it was, was just fun. Were you a fan of, of Portishead, of PJ Harvey, of those acts? To be honest, I hadn't heard much of any of them. I had heard more Portishead than I had PJ Harvey. Mm. I actually heard Dry for the first time when I was in Dorset recording with Rob. Mm. We were recording during the days, and then I went back to my room at night, and I got on my computer, and I was thinking, might be a good time to check out some things that Rob has <laughs> done, just as an exercise. <laughs> so... I listened to Dry for the first time, and I mean, there were tears rolling down my face. It was, it's an incredible record. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. We're here with Torres in the studio. After you make a record like the debut, which probably defied your expectation, I would imagine, a little bit in the way it was received, did that up the ante for you a little bit for Sprinter in terms of, okay, people are paying attention. I better be good. Um, I, I was aware of the fact that there were more people paying attention. I mean, only because I didn't have anyone you know, anticipating my first record. I put it out so quietly. So yeah, I mean, of course I was aware of the small fan base going into writing the second one, but I was so beyond that in my head anyway. It was more of a personal challenge, I suppose. I'm hard on myself as a songwriter, as someone who <laughs> was actually trained in, you know, in doing this. I actually had to unlearn so much of it to get through this writing process because there was just that little voice in my head the professor voice. <laughs> um, See, I knew it. I knew the professor's ruined yeah, you, Yeah, it sucks. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it, it was a, a personal pressure. If one were to make a cursory comparison between the first and the second records, you know, both sets of personal songs, but much more ambitious in the arrangements and the orchestration on the second record. How did that come about? Was that like, Rob, let's do something with these songs beyond just strip back kind of folk-based kind of music? Uh, yes. I actually knew very soon after putting the first record out that I wanted more out of my sound. The live sound evolved so quickly. When I was touring that first record, the shows just became heavy and it just became clear to me that I wanted more and I was, I was, I was always trying to get more out of my guitar and you know, more drums, more everything, really. <laughs> um, so the I knew that the second record needed to be a, a better reflection of what the live show is. And so it, it happened very naturally. And I was writing these songs and already hearing instrumentation that I'd never tried before. And so when I came to Rob with the songs, I was giving him a lot of references you know, mm -hmm. listen to the drums on this song, listen to the bass line on this song, <laughs> listen to this key change. Like I was, I was just throwing a lot of references at him and colors and textures and he would interpret. I heard there were literary and cinematic references too. 
that was more than just music that you were throwing at him. You were throwing books at him and movies <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> like yeah, interpret this book for it was me. It's quite and, nebulous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Give us an example of that. God. Um, there's this short story called Teddy. It's the last story in Nine Stories by J.D. Salinger. And God, I don't even know how to explain it. Um, <laughs> I was at the time of recording becoming increasingly obsessed with past lives and reincarnation and a lot of things that I guess I'd never had any interest in before. And so I was like, Rob, okay. So I've been reading about like this, there's this one story and, and this kid, you know, he's talking about past lives and like, <laughs> just mm. um, go off on these horrible tangents. And, and I'd be like, so I want like this transition to sort of sound like a past life. And then I want it to sound like I'm being reborn. And then, I want, <laughs> but like this funkadelic baseline. <laughs> <laughs> these rock critic types talk and talk and talk about your personal confessionals right but i think a lot of what you're doing is playing different characters in some of your songs and often they're incredibly empathetic where's that come from these songs are meant to connect and they're meant to read as conversations and so yeah i do love character work i i love playing with perspectives and it's not necessarily somebody else that i'm playing it's just maybe a, a heightened version of myself or one facet of myself that I'm playing or, you know, I guess I'm exploring my depths. And I, I think that there are perhaps a lot of characters inside of me. <laughs> is, that, that, uh, is it being rewarded? Are you hearing from people who said, you know, this song helped me from a particular point? Yes, I, I've, I've been getting more of that um, with this second record. I mean, that's why I'm doing this. So it's incredible to hear you know, that it's connecting with, with certain people. And, you know, a lot of these songs are so hyper-specific that there's a a certain demographic of people that I think, from my perspective, are ultimately going to connect most with these songs. And I'm hearing from a lot of those people saying, you know, I just got a note the other day, I'm a preacher's kid in Alabama, and I was just told not to return to my lifelong church because of lifestyle choices, mm-hmm. things like that. And, I mean, it's... That's that's why I'm doing this. See, that's fascinating to me because I am not a preacher's kid and I'm not yeah. 24 and I'm not a woman, right? I think one of the strengths of your songwriting is the sort of ambiguity is that people in a lot of different situations, you know, to hear you say specific, I would go exactly the opposite as a listener and yet it's still speaking to me. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, when I say hyper-specific, I do mean within character. So it's yeah. not, you know, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily me being hyper-specific. But hyper-specificity is the way that I guess I've chosen to tell these stories. I am a tired woman in Stand best in- 
last song on the record is also a kind of a tremendous piece of work. Seven minutes, pretty stripped down. It's probably the, one of the sparest songs on the record, but also one of the most powerful, The Exchange. And a few weeks ago when we talked, uh, when I was doing an article on you for the Chicago Tribune, you had mentioned that that's a song that I may never play. So I wondered, if have you rethought that, or is, do you really think that song is just going to, it's just too too much to, to do live again? I don't know. Maybe eventually. I don't know if it's possible, but maybe I'll f- feel a bit more detached from it with time. But I don't anticipate that. And I'm I'm not that way about any of my other songs. But that one is... There's no getting around how personal and and, I guess, special that one is to me. I've listened to that performance a number of times, and it's very intimate. It seemed like you were having as hard a time getting through it the first time in that studio, it sounded like everything was going into that song. Was it tough to even do there? Was it tough to even do in that studio setting? Yes, it was actually so, so difficult to do that I ended up taking, Rob actually brought a, a Zoom portable handheld recorder and he gave it to me and he just said, you know what, you take this and at any point during this recording process over the next couple of weeks, you just take it outside in your bedroom and you just do a take, do a few takes on your own. Mm-hmm. Because I was having such a hard time doing a studio recording of the song with, you know, Rob and an engineer in the room. So I ended up, the the final take on the record is actually just a Zoom recorder version that I did outside alone. I'm just afraid to see my hero's age I am afraid of disintegration If you're not here I cannot be here for you you're not here. I cannot be alone. Mother, father, I'm You know, uh, Mackenzie, I know that I've read interviews saying, you know, everybody always compares me to this artist or that artist. They never compare me to Kurt Cobain. I'm going to make a Kurt Cobain comparison. <laughs> yes. I, I remember talking to him about the song Polly, you know, which was a horrifying account of a rape that was uh, very difficult for him to write, and he poured a lot into it. And then he faced this challenge whenever he would perform it on stage, especially when they're at places like Reading. There's 100,000 people, and they're cheering in the wrong spots, right? So I wonder, you seem so awkward about so many parts of this business of getting out there in public, you know, talking to people and hyping yourself and, and you put it all in the music. I wonder what that challenge is like then when you have some songs that are so personal you can't even play them on stage. You know, at what point does it become show business? You've got to play a show tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, are you wrestling? Because you seem to put so much of yourself in your performances. It does all go into the performances, and that's the part that I have the most fun with. That's what I love doing, and everything else is the hard part for me. 
I guess more than anything, talking about myself and talking about what I do because I do put it all into the songs. Um, yeah, but it's it's part of the business. I mean, I'm I'm learning. It's yeah. um, I am very awkward. <laughs> I, I hope we haven't been too painful on you. No, not at all. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you use the word fun because I think sometimes when people make music as intense as yours. Listeners and especially critics forget that there is a joy in it. I mean, you love doing this, don't you? Oh, I love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. Getting to play these songs every night, it's transcendent. It's the only thing in my life that is. Mm. Yeah, it's a reason to live. <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we are here with Torres. What are we going to hear next? This is called The Harshest Light. Yeah. 
Torres on Sound Opinions, The Harshest Light. Mackenzie Scott, Aaron Manning, Cameron Kapoor, Dominic Zappola, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. It was a joy. You can see video of the complete performance by Torres on our website, soundopinions.org. Share your opinions of this session or anything in the music world on our hotline at 888-859-1800. After the break, we'll be back with a review of the new album by Miguel. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a track called What's Normal Anyway from the new Miguel album, Wild Heart. Miguel's a Los Angeles native, and he was signed to a major label deal in 2007. It took more than two years for anything to happen with his career at that point, though, because of litigation over a previous record deal. So he was biding his time, you know, what's going to happen to the record? And he started writing songs for people like Usher, Asher Roth, Music Soulchild really put him on the map in the R&B scene as sort of a background figure. When it came time to make his debut album, All I Want Is You, in 2010, he finally got a chance to uh, get this record out there. That was heavily A&R'd. You know, this is, the, this is the kiss of death in the music industry, heavily A&R'd. That means a bunch of guys, a bunch of executives at the record company decided what this record was going to sound like and tried to plug you into a slot so that it could get played on commercial radio. The artist is a very big inconvenience in those situations. Exactly. Miguel wanted to do something very different, can be assumed, but was unable to do that. Nonetheless, one of the tracks on the record, Sure Thing, clicked in 2011, and the fact that that was a hit probably saved his career and enabled him to make a second album. What a gift that was to Miguel and to hardcore music lovers, because the second album that Miguel made was very much more in the vein of what he wanted to do rather than the record company. Kaleidoscope Dream came out in 2011. It was one of our top albums of that particular year. 
Now that he's had success with that record and also a huge hit single called Adorn, here comes album number three. Again, an opportunity for Miguel to follow his heart. It's called Wild Heart. Here's a track from it. It's called Leaves from Miguel on Sound Opinions. The leaves, they don't change, yeah. The leaves don't change, yeah. So I never saw it coming. Winter hit me, Hiroshima. Where did the sun go? Just the cruel rain pouring. Well, you say that it's over. How could it be over when I never saw it coming? Sweet California, South California, sweet California, bitter California, sweet California. Change it. Heart caught in a red tide. Cold Pacific waters keep on pulling me under. Drowning in my sorrow. Eager waves keep on crashing. You say that it's over. How could it be over? I never saw. That is Leaves from the third album by Miguel, Wild Heart. Greg, what a record this is. I don't think we've spent more time debating what songs we could play because there were so much sex and so many nasty words. You know, and yet it is not disrespectful to women fundamentally or or sensationalistic or, you know, to be clear, there's a lot of sex on there. But it's in the tradition, I think, of the Marvin Gaye's of the world, not the R. Kelly's. Too immoral for the Christians, too moral for the cutthroats. What's normal anyway? That's the song we played bumping in, and Miguel is wondering that. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's not tough enough, uh, because he doesn't disrespect women, to be hailed by gangsters, but boy, is he too dirty for the church crowd, you know? So where does he fit in? The whole album is about him wondering where he fits in. I love a quote he gave to Reuters. The album is aggression. The album is Los Angeles. The album is sex. It's psychedelia. It's lust. It's loneliness. It's attitude. It's vice. It's love. It's my life. You know, sonically, it's an amazing tour de force. It goes from folk ballad rock, kind of, you know, like a guy busking on the sidewalk to a full-on George Clinton Parliament psychedelic mind trip. This is an amazing accomplishment. It's a buy-it record for me. Yeah, Miguel is a fascinating artist, Jim, in the way he's trying to walk this divide between the sacred and the sexual. As you mentioned, this goes back a long time. I mean, let's think about Ray Charles bringing gospel music and singing, you know, somewhat profane lyrics for the time, anyway. Marvin Gaye About everyday life, yeah. He's in that tradition. At the same time, he's thinking deeply about it and where he fits in. This whole notion of not fitting in is a big part of his ethos. Too proper for the black kids, too black for the Mexicans, too broke for the rich kids. He sings on that track we opened up the review with. He is an artist sort of trying to work this balancing act where I think he excels 
is in his ability to not think about the rules. When you think about a track like The Valley, which is about the porn industry in Los Angeles, and you think, uh-oh, you know, this could be a tawdry, smutty song. But it sounds like a Nine Inch Nails outtake. It's got these mechanical rhythms. It's amazing. This kind of disembodied vocals on it. I'm your pimp, I'm your pope, I'm your pastor, babe. Confess your sins to me. Why you masturbate? Shepherd, fairy, show, babe. Like I'm your master, babe. This is our babe. Play a part, babe. And we all get paid. No one really quite sounds like this in R&B. He is really pushing outside the margins of what commercial R&B radio is allowed to play. And in that respect, I give him massive props. He's on a major label. He could have easily caved to those A&R guys who ruined his first album. He's very much doing his own thing on this record. And as you mentioned, Adorn won a Grammy for Best R&B Song. There is no greater arbiter of safe for mass consumption than a Grammy Award. And at the same time, a great song. Adorn is one of those great singles of the last five years. I think three songs at the end of this record really speak to me the loudest. You know, the gospel heights that he's able to reach on a track like Flesh, the way he orchestrates his voice into like a choir, an ecstatic call and response choir at the end of that song, is truly great. And then Leaves, he's talking, the way he enunciates those words at the end of Leaves, should have known better. It is just absolutely heartbreaking, devastating, that way that comes out of that track. That's a true soul song in every sense of the word. And I love on Face the Sun how he has the, the chutzpah, you know, to rewrite Prince and make the song his own. I mean, he's definitely referencing Prince on that. He's even got a Lenny Kravitz playing Prince guitar solo at the mm-hmm. end, uh, on that track and at the same time makes it his own. Miguel is really stepping up his game. It's a buy it album for me. Greg, what's on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to play some of our favorite summer songs of all time. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. And our intern is Emily Espinel. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Hi, Jim and Greg. My name is Andy. I'm a listener in Chicago, Illinois. Congratulations on 500 episodes. One of my favorite moments of the show that wasn't mentioned was the interview with producer John Bryan. I was actually in the live studio audience for that interview, and I will never forget how he used the piano to demonstrate the difference between a song versus a performance piece. If you take the average punk rock song, it is that same Led Zeppelin melody, even though they hated Zeppelin so much. It's been funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but if it's like... It'd be, you know, one of a thousand punk songs. Sure. Uh, there's a big difference between that and... <laughs> I mean, 
I can sit here on grand piano, play an unaffected version, and we can all go, oh, my God, yeah, that's the best thing ever. I'm a musician myself, and the distinction between the two, I remember never really considering that difference. And having that spelled out by John Bryan just blew my mind. Have a great one. Well, hello. My name is Dale Gibson, and I'm calling to request, I guess, an article, an interview with Richie Blackmore and Blackmore's Night. If you're familiar with Richie, he was one of the founding guitar players in all of rock and roll, a deep purple rainbow, certainly hard rock of later years. He now does a Renaissance-themed music. Very popular, very spiritual, excellent, excellent musician. I think it'd be great for your show. Hope to hear from you. Bye. Hi, my name is Mike. Congratulations, uh, Greg and Jim, on uh, your first 500 shows on NPR. It's truly enlightening, I must say, especially for those of us who are not teenagers who uh, did grow up with rock and roll, but uh, have trouble keeping up these days. By the way, Jim, I want to thank you very much for bashing a greasy, loudmouth, over-glorified person known as Bruce Springsteen, whose hit songs such as Born to Run and Born in the U.S.A. were based on him yelling. He does nothing for me. I've never enjoyed listening to him. I don't want to hear him for free, let alone pay for him. Aaron, and I just finished listening to your 500 episodes, and I just have to say, I don't have a clue about why anybody would argue about Springsteen. So I know that one of you just doesn't want to hear this, but you're a lot younger than me, and if you were not driving your car in 1975 listening to absolute crap on the radio, and you didn't hear Born to Run break through the heavens you were just born at the wrong time have a great weekend bye more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.